Our scripture reference this morning is Ephesians 6, 10-17, if you'd like to read along with me. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. Thank you, Sue, for reading that scripture. We are again so glad that you're here. If you're just now tuning in, welcome to Bayless Baptist Church or this online gathering, as it were, whatever has you logging on today. We really are so glad that you are here. My name is Evan Skelton. I'm the pastor here at Bayless, and I would love to get to know you. You can find links above that you can connect with our church, um, even online contact forms. Um, Today, we are going to be continuing a series called The Invisible War. And we're going to be walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the end of it, pretty close, uh, this time in chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. Again, we hope you will keep your Bibles open. We're going to get right to work. Now, our passage today, it addresses, I I have to tell you, a very important question many of us are asking right now, Um, a very timely question, and that's, what practical difference does Christianity make in navigating the really ugly and unpredictable stuff of life? You see, every one of us faces suffering. It's only a matter of time before something like a pandemic knocks the wind out of us. But every one of us faces suffering. If you've not faced suffering, maybe you've just got your head in the sand, or maybe it is coming. Now, Christianity, I'm sorry, on a happy note, welcome to Bayless, but still, this is, the Christianity is, is something that is, is honest about suffering, perhaps more so than anyone else can be. But what practical difference, again, does Christianity make in these ugly times? Let me ask just honestly, are Christians left to deal with suffering and fear in the way that most deal with it? Maybe yet of a sense trying to find security, uh, controlling what they can. Maybe some pretending that the circumstances just aren't what they are, choosing to hope for the best even though it might not be true. Maybe holding off that sinking feeling that, we all have with another episode of Tiger King or another five minutes scrolling through Instagram, maybe even resorting to something more destructive and dangerous like alcohol or drugs or pornography to numb or to comfort. You know, perhaps many of us are 
even right now, sinking into spiraling despair. Not sure our lives will ever be the same. You know, according to the Bible, and I think we would say from experience, life is a battle, friends, isn't it? It's a battle. And it's in this battle, does Christianity make any difference at all? Again, we have been in the book of Ephesians written to a people who, like us, are finding life to be more than they can handle. They are finding that they, they don't, they're not sure. They've got the inner resources for what it takes. And yet, Paul seems to make two very surprising assumptions about this battle we all face. He assumes, one, that the fight is actually a lot more intense than we realize. Last week, we looked at these previous verses in verses 10 through 13, and the whole assumption of that passage is that we only know a part of the picture. As hard as our lives are, there is a battle behind the battle. There is an enemy who is behind all others, who is actually taking, trying to take any opportunity to throw us off our balance, to use the everyday stuff or the more extreme stuff like a virus to wrestle us to the ground. Paul seems to assume, again, that the problem is a lot worse than we realize. As Paul puts it, verse 12, where we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Put that on your next Hallmark card or on your Facebook feed. But then Paul does so because he actually also seems to think that in the midst of these battles, even in stress and uncertainty, even in the grief ahead, that Christians will stand. And it's not because Christians have some uncommon moral fiber, or perhaps they have their head in their clouds. They're just hiding from everything. It's not even because they're singing love songs to themselves in the mirror every morning, but because in their very evident weakness and their frenetic fear, in the midst of their, their lack They have been clothed with something supernatural. In the midst of their lack of strength, in the midst of their lack of security, they've been clothed with strength and security, which our passage refers to as the armor of God. Now, I grew up in a Christian home. And as a Christian kid, I remember going to this this local Christian bookstore, which I recognize don't really exist anymore. But nonetheless, as a kid, I would love the days that we would go in and actually I would rush back to the Christian toy section. Yes, those do exist. Not that you should search Amazon for these things. Honestly, some of them are very cheesy. Some of, some of them are openly heretical. But nonetheless, there are these uh, Moses action figures, right? Or these Jesus loves you pogo sticks. Um, a whole variety of t-shirts. But none of these things would catch my attention. Only one precious cardboard box emblazoned with the red title. I can still see it today. The Armor of God. And in this box, you see, was contained surely any, everything a little boy needs, a young boy needs, is, is an armor set. But this is God's armor set. And so you have um, he had this helmet, but um, uh, blazoned across it is the helmet of salvation. You've got the shield you can whip around. It says the shield of faith. And by far the coolest part of the set was the plastic sword that came with, called the sword of the spirit. Um, I have to tell you, though, it doesn't matter what you called that thing. Uh, put in the hands of an, a young boy and watch how they use it. You might as well call that thing the uh, sword of Satan. But the image here in this passage, or rather the series of images, isn't quite so plastic and cliche as all that. It turns out, actually, that this armor, this analogy that Paul is using is actually 
summarizing everything he's been building for in this entire letter. That this, this summary, this picture is a, of the practical difference that Christianity makes in strange and difficult times. It summarizes just what is the Christian hope right now. I hope you will keep your Bibles open again with me to Ephesians 6 to see these words for yourself, or at least to make sure that I'm not pulling a fast one on you with what it has to say. I want to make sure that anything I'm saying is something that God is trying to make clear to us. And we're going to take each of these six images in turn. So we're going to have to move kind of quickly. And we're going to start with the first, the belt of truth. Now, before we get into this one, I have to admit, anyone else finding the headlines right now to be a little overwhelming? You know, Apple News has started these uh, daily emails that I, autom- without asking for, keep getting on a daily basis. The, uh, and every headline, it feels like saying the world is ending, or the world is ending uh, even faster than it is, or the end of the world is going to be worse than we thought it was. Uh, it seems like the headlines just keep getting more and more severe. And it's not like the headlines always say the same thing. Some, the, these headlines, some say the virus is coming to an end and the effects are overblown. Some say this is only the first wave of our pandemic and it's going to lead to what, substanti- what could be an a, uh, economic ice age. Now, for a culture that says it doesn't love objective truth, it tells us to do, well, to live our truth. You know what sure wants some objective truth right now? I certainly do. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but I want something stable and reliable. I want to know, if, regardless if I like it or not, what news is true. Should I go out and buy more toilet paper? Is that cure that everybody is sharing on Facebook actually work? Are you going to lose your job or not? Is our world ever going to recover? It's in moments like this that we come to understand why the Bible understands that truth, objective, universal, unchanging truth is actually a fundamental human need. Even if we might disagree with it on the front end, that truth is not something we can exist without. And the first thing that Paul says the Christian has been clothed with is truth. It uses this image of a belt, not a belt that you might use to hold up your pants. Uh, It's not a belt for you ladies that you use to accent a blouse. It's not even a sword hilt. It's a kind of belt that would uh, would actually be the form almost of a a, uh, um, a a, a, a skirt. It was an apron um, that uh, uh, Roman soldiers would wear underneath their armor so that when they're running and moving in battle, the metal didn't cause abrasion um, on their thighs. And like a soldier's belt, Paul says that a Christian has tied on truth. But it's not just any truth. And truth we're to tie on is specifically what the first chapter of Paul's letter refers to as the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This truth is specifically the truth of the gospel. And why does this matter practically? Why does it matter that we've been tied with, we've been, we've been, we've put on a belt of truth, truth, which is the gospel of salvation? You see, the gospel 
It answers some of our most important questions. Questions everyone is asking. You may think that Christianity is largely about a set of moral norms. Some of you might think that Christianity is largely a set of ideas that experts and scholars are debating about today and will debate about for generations to come. You might even think that Christianity is honestly a set of rather uh, well-worn personal cliches that surely some people out there use to help them sleep at night. But the gospel is actually not supremely about any of these things. The gospel is truth. It's truth about who God is supremely. It's a truth about how the world was meant to be and how in the world it got so messed up because many of us would say the world at least is not what it should be. You may give different explanations for it, but if we're honest too, we would say it's not just the world that's messed up, there's something in us that's not what it should be. Some of us have been surprised to see us do things that we never thought we were capable of and say that the problem isn't just out there, it's in us. And the Bible makes sense of that for us. But more importantly, the, the whole Bible, it's building this story, this, this story of truth in which it's telling us not just about what the world was supposed to be like and God's relationship to it and how it all went wrong, but how God is making it right again. How, what lengths God himself has gone to bring us to himself to restore everything that is broken. Practically speaking, when Christians tie their story to the story that the gospel tells, the truth has a way of grounding and orienting us even when the whole world seems to be upended and confused. You see the belt of truth. I mean, that sounds like a superhero tool, doesn't it? But it is indeed something supernatural, something supernatural that allows us to be, remain oriented and grounded when nothing else seems to be. It allows Christians to keep their footing, knowing where their hope is and where it does not. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by uh, the, uh, by the um, president of Southern Seminary, Al Mohler. For the Christian, optimism is naive, but pessimism is atheistic. Let me read that again. For the Christian, optimism is naive, but pessimism is atheistic. What does this mean? It means that Christians are, are uh, uniquely equipped from not, putting their, not, to, not to put their hope in the wrong places. They, they, they know better than from putting their hope in any human ambitions and promises. But nonetheless, they, they're also spared from being hopeless in the process. They're not pessimistic about history. They know that there is something that is saving us. It's just not ourselves. It's like Sam in The Lord of the Rings. He says to Frodo, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. Sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. That is the story the gospel tells. Only this story is a true one. It is not a fiction. Friend, if you're a Christian, if you have fastened on the belt of truth, if you orient your anxiety, your apathy, your anger even, by the word of truth, 
you are able to strangely say, yes, the days are dark. They may even get darker. But so long as the gospel is true, there is a light on the horizon. I can see it even now. Christians, fasten on the belt of truth. But not only that, number two, the breastplate of righteousness. That's the second thing the Christian is to put on. Righteousness. And it's important to say that many of us hear that word and with a variety of assumptions. And I have to tell you, the biblical notion of righteousness has nothing to do with kind of a holier-than-thou ego, with a kind of posture that looks down its nose and compares itself to others and says, wow, praise God, I'm not like that. You know what? Jesus actually had no time for people like that. He didn't imagine that those people were actually close to God at all. That's not how Jesus himself conceives of righteousness, nor does Paul. But Jesus assumes that faith in him, if we actually have rested upon him, if we've been clothed with that truth, we're actually going to, there's going to be some practical differences in our life. Others will be able to tell. There will be some very practical outworkings. It will, there will be a life of righteousness. Certainly, it doesn't mean that you're perfect, and, but certainly you aren't what you used to be. The other way Paul speaks of this is of putting on the new self and putting off what used to be the case. It's, a, it's, it's wearing new clothing to recognize your identity has supremely changed and to live in light of that new identity. As a prisoner, the door is open and you should walk out of jail. But still, the Bible assumes, again, the Christian faith will have some very practical and very public effects on your thinking patterns, on your relationships and your spending habits, even your most hidden desires. The beautiful things that God says are now true of the Christian, uh, he says because they have believed upon Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. He says again that they're made clean, that all cause for lasting shame has been dissolved, that they have a new heart beating in their chests. All of these very mystical and sometimes uh, 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 images that were hard for our imaginations to go around what God says is true about you is actually beginning to look true on the outside. It's becoming true in the present. You are able to say, again, I am not perfect, but praise God, I am not what I once was. This righteousness, though, is more than just the practical outworking of the gospel. It's more than just what people will see and be able to tell from a li the life of a Christian. Notice this passage phrases righteousness as a kind of armor, as a breastplate, uh, uh, like a breastplate would cover a Roman soldier's chest against close-quarter blows and long-range arrows. Living into this life, living as a public Christian, you see, the Bible understands to be a form of self-defense. It is actually a form of armor. That may confuse some of us. You know, it doesn't mean that Christians are to isolate and secure themselves from the world. I recognize physically we're trying to do that, but still, follow with me. It's not saying that Christians, again, are trying to, to distance themselves and defend themselves by, by removing themselves from the world. Instead, what I mean by defense is that when God tells us no, when he asks us to deny, in fact, what seems to be very natural desires, God does so in order to spare us from heartache and pride. He does so in order to spare us from the consequences of the worst parts of ourselves and 
from others experiencing those as well. He, he does so to spare us from drinking again at the poisoned well. And as we walk in his way, it turns out, according to the Bible, we understand what it means to be truly human. We're not only to fasten on the belt of truth, we're to bind on the practical effects of the gospel as a breastplate. Practically speaking, this means that just as a Christian is as isolated as everyone else is right now, who they are in private at these moments is going to be the same as they were in public. It means that if you were a Christian, you have the spiritual power right now not only to resist, resist new temptations that have caught you off guard. You know, it's fun, interesting when we are isolated and alone, some things that were imaginable become imaginable. It's not only just the power to resist new temptations, to determine not to give evil even an inch in our lives, but it's the power to actually use our time well as if it matters, to seize our days, to seize our moments, to seize new opportunities as ways in which we are loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, in which we are loving our neighbor as ourselves. It is assuming that we actually can live our days as if they matter, just as much as they mattered before we were isolated. It is assuming, again, that God has work to do with us, and that work is sometimes only seen by God, and even though it is only seen by God, that it matters. A Christian will be able to be seen as a Christian, even if we were a fly on the wall. Third, shoes of gospel readiness. Now, praise God, for those of you who uh, know anything about our family, you know we were getting ready to move. Well, we just, we just not only closed on a home, we just moved in, and you can celebrate with us. We are so grateful for so many of you who have prayed for us, and the timing of this could not be more chaotic. After all, baby number four for our family is coming just at the end of this month, but somehow we made it in times like crazy like these, and I guess the advantage is, is we have plenty to do during this quarantine but one of the things that has become a nightly routine for our family is actually a walk around the block. And no one gets as excited as our youngest, um, our two-year-old. You know, when he, he starts to hear that we're, we're going for the walk, even the initial uh, announcement by his mom, he, he stands up and runs into our living room, grabs everybody's shoes, and starts shouting, uh, shoes, 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 and starts handing and throwing people's shoes around the house. Shoes for you, and for you, and for you. He's give, it's, a, it's really one of the most adorable things I've seen, even if I'm being clocked in the face with my own shoes. Why does he get so excited about shoes? Well, even my two-year-old knows that we only put our shoes on when we are ready to go. Shoes are for going. And so Paul speaks of putting on shoes, which he, again, for the, is using the image of a soldier's um, half boots called caligia, I think it's called. And again, I butchered that regardless. These leather half boots that were used for long marches, which he refers to as readiness. It's interesting. Shoes of readiness. Ready for what exactly? What kind of action are these shoes readying us for? Well, there's a particular quote from the Old Testament that Paul probably has in mind. It comes from the prophet Isaiah, and it's quoted by him also in Romans, Isaiah 52, verse 7. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This passage is speaking of a lone messenger that would have been sent back from battle to the city. Um, and he would announce to back home that the battle is over, that victory has come. Notice what this messenger is said to announce. It's not just good news, but what does this good news say? It's the good news of peace, the good news of happiness, the good news of salvation, this good news to, he is saying to God's people, your God reigns. It's interesting. Paul assumes that no matter the circumstances, Christians have been prepared, they have been readied by the gospel itself to announce the gospel. We're going to refer to this again in a second when we get to the sword of the Spirit, but one of the remarkable things about being a Christian is a readiness to make sense of the good news of Jesus Christ. Again, the Bible is going to assume one of the marks of a Christian, the clearest ways to tell, is they are ready to share the same news which saved them. They have an active posture, uh, not the kind of posture that says, I'll wait until somebody asks me about my faith or takes comfort in the fact that they one day, one time, years ago, blurted out the gospel to that person on the airplane. You know, a Christian is eager to, to, uh, to make sense of the gospel again and again. They don't have, they're not marked by cold-heartedness, but by a kind of broken-heartedness over those they're around, uh, over the lives of others, and, and it's clear expectation that just as God once brought them to faith, um, even as stubborn as they were, as, even as uncaring as they were, that he could uh, save another. He could waken another to salvation. This mark of a Christian is expecting that God is going to do it again, and they want to be the one to bear the good news. They are wearing shoes of readiness. Christians, let me ask you, has your fear right now pulled you so far into yourself that you are no longer thinking about the the spiritual condition of others? Are you so concerned with keeping you and your family safe that your prayers have become rather self-preoccupied? Have you so set your eyes on the end of this crisis that you are no longer discerning the opportunities that it presents in the midst of it? I tell you what, right now, especially in circumstances like these, people are asking questions that they may have never asked in their entire life or they have avoided for a long time. In fact, you may be tuning in today for just that reason or because a Christian who loves you wanted to offer you hope. Friends, we may not know what God is up to in these times, but a few things are certain. One, God is not panicking or wringing his hands over this. And two, he is still the same God who determined And before time even began, 
even in determining those he would save, to determine to make them useful, to give them good works to do. And that has not changed. He has made them ready to engage these good works, uh, to, uh, to uh, preach the gospel to others, to wrench others out of the jaws of darkness. He has readied those he would save to be the agents, the messengers of the gospel of peace. And that has not changed. And in fact, perhaps even now, or especially now, it is more true than ever. What kind of glory, I have to ask, can you dream with me of what God could bring to himself, especially when things seem dark and panicky? What kind of glory might God bring to himself when others are realizing that nothing in their life is strong and stable, only he is? How could God make some, something as evil as a pandemic used for his name's sake and for the worship of him forever? Number four, Christians have been given the shield of faith. Last week, we spent a great deal of time unpacking a Christian perspective about spiritual powers and the conflict that is going on in realms that we cannot see. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that today. I would encourage you to listen to the sermon which has been posted online. These realms that may exist beyond our current comprehension, but the Christian understands that actually have real practical outworkings in our everyday. Paul expands our understanding here of these spiritual forces by using a different illustration than he's used in the, one, in the previous ones. He uses this image again of warfare, that of arrows, which in, uh, again in war in their times were not just launched at the enemy. Sometimes these arrows would be dipped in pitch and then that pitch would be lit on fire and then quickly launched into the enemy uh, forces uh, to cause uh, deadly personal blows or to uh, cause the uh, lines to erupt in panic and to provoke chaos. It was used, again, this image is used here to describe the unrelenting attacks of these same spiritual forces, which certainly seek to tempt us, again, to cause us to justify what we once found to be unthinkable. But so often, these attacks aren't just temptation, friends. These fiery darts, as they are called here, they come in the form that perhaps is even more subtle of doubt, of despair, of persecution, of the kind of teaching which seems so close to the truth and yet is not. Romans knew that a lone soldier, even with their armor on, would certainly fall if they tried to engage that flaming attack. So they invented these large rectangular shields which were covered in leather. And this leather would be dipped in water. Water would be poured over it at the beginning of the battle so that it could extinguish these flaming darts as they were launched by the enemy as they hit. These shields, you can assume, again, would eventually, though, as the day progressed, would, they would dry out. And what happened when they dry out is it only took a, uh, a, little for, a little flame to set this whole shield ablaze. And as they were cast aside and left behind, as the Romans grabbed a new shield and continued to move forward, they were left in a charred and useless broken heap. But Paul assures Christians that their shield is different, that we have a shield that does not burn up, a shield which will always defend, a shield which will always extinguish. You see, this shield is so strong it can block even a barrage of lies. 
It can block dozens upon dozens of flaming darts launched by these spiritual forces. Did you notice the phrase here? Even what is the phrase? That, the phrase is, all of the flaming darts. It absorbs absolutely every piercing attack from the evil one. It, it quenches that piercing attack, every single one of them, with scarcely a sizzle. What kind of shield could this be? It is called the shield of faith, but it is important that we understand at this point what is the nature of this biblical faith. You know, is faith, according to the Bible, a crossing of your fingers, a holy hoping for the best, a stubborn, perhaps though even baseless, belief that everything is going to work out for the best. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. I do believe in fairies. It's this, this is blind leaping into the dark. None of these things actually is what the Bible says is, uh, is, is true, genuine biblical faith. I appreciate how par Pastor Art Azaria actually puts it. Um, faith instead, he said, is a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon what? God and his promises. If you are absolutely gripped, he says, by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess, possess that certainty this is what faith is, my friends. Positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God. It is believing God. Taking God at His word. Living in obedience to His revelation, whatever the cost, because you know deep down in your bones that God will always do as He says. That His speaking is His doing. It is the abiding assurance in God and His promises that animates you to persevere in your obedience to Him. This is the nature of faith. Again, reassured by the gospel, the Christian does not simply re uh, um, rest in defense, remain in defense. They actually can press forward. It was said that a Roman battalion uh, advancing with their shields in place was an unstoppable force. How much more so the people of God who are secured and defended by a God whose characters, character and promises never change. Your faith is not... Strengthened, I have to tell you, by gritting your teeth and trying to produce more of it, to muster up more courage, more faith, to believe it's all going to be okay. Instead, your faith is strengthened, not as you set your eyes on your faith at all, but as you set them on the object of your faith. And who is that object? It is Christ alone. It is as we actually set our eyes upon the cross of Jesus Christ and upon that empty tomb that the Christian can then say with full confidence, of course I can trust him. Where else, after all, would I go? They take up the shield of faith. Number five, the helmet of salvation. Now, I've already referenced this briefly, but again, Paul did not uh, invent these analogies. You know, Paul is very creative in the analogies he uses, but it turns out he stole this one from the Old Testament from an author called Isaiah, which we've already referenced. I could highlight several verses that Isaiah uses, but I want to highlight two. Again, you'll notice this on your screen. Verse 11, 5. Chapter 11, verse 5, I'm sorry. Righteousness 
shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Chapter 59, verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Does this sound familiar to you? It sounds a lot like our passage, doesn't it? You see, the question is, is though, who is this referring to? Because it's referring to someone who is already wearing this armor of God. It turns out the armor of God has been worn, actually, by someone before us, whom Isaiah calls the Messiah, a term for the rescuer that all of human, human existence has been looking forward to, the, the solution to everything that is wrong with the world, the one who would remake all things and right everything wrong. This coming king who would take up his armor, the very armor of God in which he would be clothed and confident and march to victory for his people. It was this armor that allowed him actually to advance upon the conquering troops and to win. And this armor was worn, it turns out, by Jesus himself. Indeed, Jesus has won. He has won over our, uh, our enemies. This conquering king has stepped upon them, it says. But it's immensely important that we get this. He, he did so. He secured his victory by being run, by down, run down by those enemies first because he was destroyed by them. And strangely as it may seem, the one who wore the armor of God did not use it to his own advantage. He brought us to safety by being slain in battle himself. He was overrun by the forces of darkness. He was pierced by the arrows of the evil one first. We are reminded this coming Friday, this good Friday, this black Friday, that the way we came to don this helmet of salvation, if you are a Christian, is by our king exchanging it for a crown of thorns. If you are not a Christian, again, I'm so glad you're tuning in today. If you're not sure where you're at, I want to speak directly to you for a second. You might think that Christianity is about mustering up enough strength to carry on, and it's a, basically a series of motivational messages. You might think that religion is about doing enough for God so that I can expect that God will show up for me because I've, I've made sure that I've done for him what he wanted. Maybe it's about stacking up enough on this side of the scale so it outweighs the bad. Christianity is not about any of these things. It's not about inner resources. It's not about a record of performance. It's not about your personal capacity at all. It's not about trying to get God in my favor. It's, in fact, even a lifetime of good deeds would only put me in God's debt because the, the thing is, is every single human being has not done those good things for God's sake. We've not done with God at the center of our lives. Regardless if those actions may appear to be good, they've been done supremely for ourselves. Instead, Christianity says that this rescue that we need. It's found actually by admitting it can never come from within. If I'm going to re re receive a relief from my shame, if I'm actually going to receive forgiveness and strength to stand, it must come from outside myself. And I realize it's very strange to say in a day like ours, that something is going to save us, but it, 
It is not ourselves. This rescue, in fact, comes supremely through a supernatural intervention. It comes through God Himself taking up our fight. And it comes through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Which means if you want this kind of security and strength amidst the battles of life, even for the battles that you cannot see, I have to tell you, stop trying to muster up the strength on your own and rest upon Jesus and His grace for you. Put your faith upon that foundation, this slain, though now conquering king. This, allow Him then to clothe you with His armor. Admit that you do not have what it takes. You cannot stand on your own. You must stand in the strength of His might. And that strength only comes to you because this strong king was slain for you because He allowed Himself to be made weak for you so that you again would not walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. You would have a conquering king who already won the fight. If you insist on carrying on in your own strength, though, convinced that you really do have enough, I really don't know what to tell you. Other than it's only a matter of time before you realize your lack. This pandemic has taught us none of us is untouchable. But if you would only confess faith in Jesus alone, faith in his performance and not yours, if you would receive strength, and not try and muster it up. And you would receive that strength from outside of yourself, from God. You will strangely be able to walk forward in courage even when the circumstances are dark and may grow darker still. You will have taken on the helmet of salvation and all the dignity and all the reassurance and safety that it brings. Finally, the sword of the Spirit. This entire series of images assumes not only, friends, that life is a battle, but that there is a battle actually behind the battle for the believer and the non-believer alike. But let me ask then if this is true. What is it that the devil is after? What does he want from you? Pastor Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. What does the, the devil want from you? Does he want to haunt your house? Not likely you'd write a best-selling book or become a reality television star. Make your head spin around. You could make money showing off that trick. Get you to carve a pentagram into your leg. Nah, that sort of behavior draws a big following. So what does the devil really want from you? He really only wants one thing. He wants to keep you from Christ. He wants to make you selfish. He wants you to live for your ambition. He wants you to live for your addiction. He wants you to live for your ego. He wants you to live for anyone or anything that is not Jesus. As long as he keeps you from Christ, the true and the living God, he doesn't care how it happens. He wants you to believe the lie that you are okay without a savior. He wants you to be happy or sad or scared or complacent or hungry or full Anything that gets you focused on something other than union and communion with Christ. As DeYoung puts it, when you become a Christian, you turn from the power of Satan to God. And when you live as a Christian, the devil will do all he can to get you to turn back to the way things were. Have you experienced this to be the case? You may not realize that this is the war going on, 
In fact, if you don't, it's even more dangerous. The question is, is how do we fight? How do we stand? Do we just let go and let God? If you know me, you know I don't particularly like that phrase. It's not characteristic of the Christian faith. In fact, what are we called to do? We're called to stand. We're called to withstand. We're called to put on some very active things. It's interesting, in all of these defensive images, we still have hints along the way, don't we, that Christianity isn't entirely on the defense, is it? And then here we have it clearly, the image of a sword, the image of Christianity going on the offensive, of Christianity, Christianity taking up a blade into its hand. Now, despite what you might think, the, swore, the, sword, the, sword, the sword isn't swung on the political or cultural stage, although many have tried to. The war isn't supremely about Christianity trying to gain some sort of cultural power to win the culture back to itself. And this war is definitely, or at least should not, be fought on the Facebook feed. Where is this war fought? You see, this war, this sword, isn't against any human being supremely. This, this sword is supremely about one enemy, about an evil one who is seeking to bend you to his will. Yet, we have been given a weapon again to take against him in close combat. The sword of the Spirit, which Paul tells us is the Word of God. Now, we could take this to be the entire Bible. And there is a sense in which a Christian is only adequately outfitted for the battle when they're spending daily time becoming an expert in this one book. You know, knowing it at far more than an intellectual level, the Christian is outfitted as they are reading this and seeking not just for understanding, but for transformation, as they are seeking to soak in it to ask not only what does this say, but how would my life look different if this was true? Why now is God showing me this? Assuming that there, there is something that needs to change them. It's more than just knowing who fought the battle of Jericho and how many books are in the Old Testament, their life should look like it's, this word has been stamped upon their actions, their, their words, on their desires and their expectations for the future. And that only comes from daily reading and meditation. And if you've got more time on your hands now, tell you what, this is the last thing you should drop. In fact, pour yourself, take advantage of the, the freedoms God has given you right now to pour yourself into this word, to know it, to understand it. That being said, the word of God here refers to a specific word from God. A word from God that this whole Bible has been pointing to. It's actually the climax of the Bible story. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, we begin and we end with the gospel. Every part of the Christian life is informed by it. But how is this a weapon? Think about it. How is the gospel a weapon? Again, it's not a tool to beat people over the head. It's not a a tool to show off how impressive and how right you are. It's not about a tool to win arguments. It's It's a tool to get others to see the truth. And more than that, it's a blade which seizes back human beings from the grip, from the bite of Satan. It's a tool used for that evil one to break the teeth of that lion. The gospel is the sword which frees captives from his grip and brings them into a new life, a new world of life and peace. This sword is a sword of freedom in which this sword has once freed us and now we get to use it again to free others. It is an active engagement that even now Christians are using this sword to lead others into freedom, to lead others out of captivity, to lead others away from the jaws of death itself. Do you treasure that word? 
Do you rehearse the gospel to yourself, the good news when sin and Satan seem to be breathing down your neck? Or you just click on Netflix? Do you eagerly work and pray for others around you, especially at moments like this, that they might be freed from his grip? Are you using this as a sword? Friends, we begin again and end with the gospel. It is our defense and it is our weapon. If you are a Christian, this is your armor. Take it up. Stand to your feet. For you go forward not in your strength, but his. Would you pray with me? Lord, we could not go in our own strength, only yours. You are the God who has clothed us with an armor. And we want to take advantage of that armor and to walk into a battle. And many of us are trapped in that battle even now. I pray that Christians would not just distract themselves and seek to ride out the waves. They would defend themselves from the the attacks of the enemy that's trying to use these circumstances to knock them from their feet. But they would also stand up and even march forward, seeking to seize these opportunities, to seize others away from the jaws of death. To break our hearts for those who right now are suffering and confused, who need real reassurance and hope, and would we offer it to them as it was once offered to us? Would we take on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel readiness, take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit? We only can do so because of the one who has fought for us and wore this armor and has gifted us through his sacrifice. We pray supremely for Christ's glorious name. Amen.